0: First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your son Jesus is exalted over all. We thank you, Lord, that you have made a way for us in Christ through his death on the cross and through his resurrection to live forever with you in a place called heaven. Lord, we know that your word teaches us of another reality, of a place called hell. And you warn us Repeatedly through your word. Those who do not know you will spend eternity there. Father, we ask that you would speak through your word. Clearly and strongly today, past all of our arguments, that in our hearts we would raise in protest of what you have declared to be true. Father, may we accept what you have said. And may we live in light of it. We thank you for your spirit and for the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Hell is not a hypothetical place where hypothetical people go. It is a real place where real people go. We all know and love people who will spend eternity in hell. And though I pray it is not the case, it is very likely that some in this very room, in spite of all that you will hear today, will go through your life without ever turning to Christ. And we'll spend eternity in the place that we're talking about today. The place that the Bible calls hell. And this is a sobering reality. If we're honest, hell is a topic that none of us want to think about. It is a topic that we push from our minds whenever we do think about it. C.S. Lewis went so far as to say this, speaking of hell. He said, there is no doctrine that I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. And I understand what he means by that. But it would seem that there are some in the church today, even in evangelical circles, who are trying to actually do that, to remove the doctrine of hell entirely from the Bible as if it were not taught there, and part of the impetus of this message is to respond to those attacks upon this doctrine and to make sure that we understand in our church what the Bible clearly says about it. But when I look at the church in America today, I believe a bigger problem is not those who would outright deny the doctrine of hell. A bigger problem lies in the fact that so many pastors and so many churches that would claim to believe in hell and do know that this doctrine is taught in the Bible, act as if they do not believe it and never speak of it. In fact, it has become a taboo topic in so many churches. I think the reasons for that are many. I think one of the reasons is that when you look at the history of the church, there were uh, so-called fire and brimstone preachers who spoke of hell and, in fact, pretty much only spoke of hell. And they spoke of hell in such a way and to such an extent that I believe that they forgot that the word gospel means good news. The Bible does teach about hell, but it isn't primarily about hell. It's about what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ, to save us from hell and to save us for heaven. And so, of course, we don't want to be like those preachers, but I'm afraid that in our efforts to not be like those preachers, we have swung the pendulum so far that now we will not even say the word hell in church. And I think it's a dangerous omission because if we never talk about hell, I'm afraid that we give people the impression that hell is really not something to worry about. That we're really not sure if it actually exists. And if it does actually exist, it's probably just for super bad people like Hitler. And we're sure it's not for anyone like us. And that's a dangerous thing to imply or to state because it is not true. And if someone goes through their life thinking that there is no hell or thinking that if there is, they'll be given another chance on the other side of this life to choose Jesus, and then they find out that they are wrong about that, they will find out that they are wrong too late. And as a preacher of God's Word, I'm called to preach the whole counsel of God's Word. I know this isn't a popular topic. I'm sure that this uh, sermon on Facebook probably won't get a lot of likes. But I want to be able to stand before God. And tell him that I did not shy away. from telling you the truth. In the end, it does not matter whether we want there to be a hell or not. It does not matter what I think about it or what you think about it. What matters is what the Bible has said about it. I want to share with you today what Jesus taught and what Jesus believed about hell. Because I don't know about you, but I want to believe about hell what Jesus believed about hell. And there's a lot of places that we could go in the four gospel accounts to see what Jesus taught about hell because he talked about it a lot. In fact, Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. Because he wanted us to know that it is a real place that real people will go to. And so we're going to look at a lot of scriptures along the way today, but the main passage for us is in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. If you have a copy of God's Word, if you would turn there with me. This is the longest section in any of the four Gospels where Jesus talks about judgment. Let's read it together. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, it'll be on the screens behind me. Jesus said this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the holy angels with him, that he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. I was naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as much as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. Now before we dive right into the topic of hell itself, I want us to look at a few foundational truths that we need to understand first that this passage really raises to the surface. And first off, we need to recognize this, that a day of judgment is coming for all of us and Jesus will be our final judge. Look at the scene that is painted for us in verse 31. It says, when the Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite designation for himself. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him. The emphasis here is on the glory and the authority of the one who is sitting on the throne. It says that the Son of Man comes with his glory. The holy angels are all around him. He's sitting on his throne, the throne of his glory. Jesus is the King of kings. The throne of the universe belongs to him. And it has been appointed to him by the Father on that day to judge all the earth. And in verse 32, that's what it says is happening. All of the nations are gathered before him. That that means that all of us, that one day every single one of us will stand before God and give an account of our lives. Hebrews 9, 27 drives that truth home so well. It says, it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. A judgment day is coming for us, friends, whether we like it or not, whether we feel ready for it or not. One day we will stand before Jesus and nothing will be hidden from his eyes. There will be no use in putting on pretenses before a person who knows our every thought. What is Jesus going to do to us on that day of judgment? He's going to do this. Number two, on that day of judgment, we will be separated into two groups. Those who know Jesus and those who don't. At the end of the day, that's what the sheep and the goats represent. The sheep are Christians, those who know Christ, those who follow Christ, and the goats are those who don't know Christ. John 10 tells us that Jesus is our good shepherd, and as a good shepherd, he has laid down his life for his sheep. And Jesus knows who his sheep are. Now, a goat may mix in with the sheep. It may be hard for us sometimes to tell the difference between a goat and a sheep, but that's not our job. That's Jesus' job. And he will have no problem on that day easily discerning and easily separating his sheep from the goats. This isn't the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus speaks about this day when a great separation is coming. In Matthew 13, he talked about one day how he will separate the wheat from the chaff. He also used the illustration of a dragnet that a fisherman pulls in a net that's filled with all kinds of fish. And on that day, God will be able to separate the good from the bad. He'll be able to know whose are his and whose are not. And in this passage, it, it speaks about the sheep being on his right that represents a place of blessing. It speaks about the goats being on his left in a place that represents shame and judgment. And as you read on in this passage, the Lord has a different word to the sheep than he does for the goats. To the sheep, there is a word of sweet invitation. Look in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What a sweet invitation from the Lord. And yet to the goats, he says something very different. Look in verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me. You cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is the third foundational truth that we really need to take in. We'll be separated into two groups and we will all spend eternity in one of two places. Either in an eternal heaven or in an eternal hell. For the sheep on Jesus' right hand, there's an invitation to that eternal heaven, to a kingdom that has been prepared for us before the foundation of the world. But to the goats who are on his left hand, there is a dismissal. Instead of come, Jesus says depart. And the place that he tells the goats to depart to is called an everlasting fire, a place prepared for the devil and his angels. Now the reason that Jesus gives in this passage for why the sheep are invited into heaven And why the goats are dismissed may be surprising to us. In verse 35, he says, I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And notice how surprised and how humbled the sheep are to hear that they ever did anything that directly ministered to Jesus. Because, of course, most Christians who have ever walked the earth have not walked the earth at the same time as Jesus. And so these sheep are humbled by the fact that Jesus is saying that we ever did anything that ministered to him. And Jesus says to them in verse 40, Assuredly, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Now, of course, Jesus is calling us, and the Bible calls us, to love all people, to even love our enemies, and to do good to all, whether people know Christ or whether they don't. But, but in this passage, notice that Jesus is speaking specifically about those who are believers. He said, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren— You did it to those who are my brothers, those who through faith in me have become a part of the family of God. And one of the ways that we demonstrate our faith in Christ is the way that we minister and serve, especially to other believers. Jesus says the exact opposite to those who are goats. He says, you saw me in need when you saw my followers in need and you did not help. You didn't feed me. You didn't give me a drink. You didn't minister to me. And don't miss the reaction of the goats to Jesus saying that. While the sheep are humble and surprised that they ever did anything right, the goats are arrogant and shocked that they ever did anything wrong. now, I want to be clear here because if this was the only passage that you have ever read in the whole Bible, you might get the impression that the way that a person is saved is by helping the poor and doing good to other believers. You might get the impression that a person is saved through their own effort and through their own good works. But when we look at the whole context of Scripture, that is not what Jesus is teaching here. We read in the scriptures that we are not saved by works, but we are saved by faith alone. Faith alone in the work that Jesus has already accomplished for us when he died for us at the cross. But what we're seeing here is the evidence of that faith. That if our faith is genuine, if our faith is real, it will show up in the way we live our lives. And if it's not showing up, then we have reason to question its authenticity. And we read the same thing in 1 John. John said, if we claim that the love of God abides in us, then the love of God should flow out of us. Then we should love others, and that's precisely what Jesus is saying here. He's demonstrating the evidence in the life of the sheep and in the life of the goats whether or not they've been transformed by the love of God. So in the end, what makes the difference between whether you're a sheep or whether you're a goat, whether you're invited in or whether you're told to depart on that day of judgment is where you stand with Jesus Christ. Jesus could not be more clear here that those who do not know him will spend eternity separated from him in a place called hell. And so with those foundational truths In our minds, I want us to focus in our remaining time on on hell itself. And based on this passage and based on the rest of Scripture, what did Jesus say about hell? That's the question before us. This is hell according to Jesus. And again, remember, it doesn't matter what I think or what you think or what we want to be true. What matters is what our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has declared to be true. What did Jesus say About how, first of all, he said this it is God's judgment on all who do not follow him. Again, Matthew 25 is is a judgment scene. And at the judgment, we will be separated into two groups into sheep and goats, into saved and lost into followers of Christ and those who do not follow Christ, and one group will enter into his kingdom. They'll experience life and salvation and peace and all the things that we're going to talk about for the next few weeks when we talk about the doctrine of heaven. But there is another group here, Those that do not know Christ as Savior who will not enter into that place of rest called heaven. Instead, it says here from the lips of Jesus that they will stand shoulder to shoulder for all eternity with the devil and his angels in a place called hell. Here's something that we must understand. Jesus said not everyone will be saved. Not everyone will be saved. There's no denying that in this passage and in the rest of the Gospels, Jesus clearly taught that some will be saved and some will be lost. Some will be in heaven and some will be in hell. I know that there are some who teach what is called universalism. Universalism is the doctrine that one day everyone will be saved. There are non-Christian universalists who believe that it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian, a Muslim, a Buddhist, doesn't matter what you believe, one day everyone will be all right. But there are also Christian universalists who believe that one day Christ will save everyone regardless of whether that person has put faith in Christ during their lifetime Or not. Rob Bell, in his book Love Wins, teaches a modern day version of universalism. And and there's a part of me, of course, that would love to believe that's true, that would love to believe that one day every single person will be saved. The problem is the Bible doesn't say that. And the Bible doesn't say that anywhere. Now, universalists will claim that the Bible says that. They'll even use a passage like the one we studied a few weeks ago in Philippians chapter 2, where we read this, Therefore God has also highly exalted him, meaning Christ, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. But that passage doesn't mean that everyone will be saved. That passage means that one day everyone will acknowledge, whether they acknowledged it during their lifetime or not, one day everyone will acknowledge the truth that will be plain before their eyes, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Far from saying that everyone will be saved, Jesus actually in one place says that most people will not be saved. Listen to what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are a few who find it. Now, we can protest that, of course, and we can say, you know, that just doesn't seem fair to me. And oftentimes we will raise the objection. I think every thinking person at some time in their life will raise the objection. Well, what about the person who hasn't heard? What what about the hypothetical man on the island who has never heard about Jesus? How is it fair that he'll spend eternity in hell? And the reality is, and we need to take this in, that there are over a billion people in the world who have not heard the name of Jesus. what the scripture plainly teaches us is that there will be no innocent people in hell. That every single one of us has sinned against the God who created us and what every single one of us deserves is judgment for all eternity for our sin. Now we haven't all seen the same amount of light. That is true. And Jesus seems to teach in Luke chapter 12 that there will be degrees of punishment in hell, just as there will be degrees of reward in heaven. And the degrees of punishment in hell will be based on how much knowledge you had. How much knowledge you rejected. Not everyone receives the same amount of light, but everyone has received light. Romans 2 says that God has given us a conscience, that we know the difference between right and wrong, and we still choose wrong. Romans 1 teaches us that God has shown us, even in creation, his invisible attributes. They are clearly seen, and it should cause within us a stirring to seek after God, to bow before God. And instead, we all do the opposite in our sinful nature we run from him as rebels. I think instead of asking the question why doesn't everyone go to heaven, we should be asking how is it that any of us get to go to heaven? How is it that God could be so gracious to us in spite of all that we have done? And I think when we get to heaven and we have a clear understanding of God's perfect holiness and we have a clear understanding of our own sinfulness in the light of his holiness, that is the question that we will be asking. Jesus said not everyone will be saved and also Jesus said that on that day no one will get a second chance. I know that we hear that and again, our first instinct is to say, wait, is a God a God of second chances? The reality is God is a God of second chances. God is a God of a million chances and every day he gives us another chance to respond to his gospel, to turn to him in faith. But what we read in the word of God is that when this life is over, so are our chances. What the Bible plainly teaches is that whatever we are at the time of our death is what we will be for all eternity. If we are saved, we will be eternally saved. But if we are lost, we will be eternally lost. Earlier in this very chapter, in Matthew 25, Jesus tells the story of 10 unmarried women, 10 virgins. He speaks about how five of them were ready for the Lord's return and five of them were not. And when the day of the wedding came, the five who were not found themselves on the outside of the wedding party and they're knocking on the door, but the door is shut. And in Luke chapter 13, Jesus teaches this even more clearly. Listen to these words. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter, will not be able. When once the master of the house, listen, has risen up and shut the door. And you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. He will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you, where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you, say, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. These are not my words. These are the words of Jesus Christ. What a terrifying prospect it is that there are some that, when this life is over, will think that they're going to get another chance, but Jesus will say the door is shut. Whatever side of the door you are on, you will stay on. So, friend, what side of the door are you on right now? Here's the second main truth that Jesus taught us about hell He said it's a place of eternal, agonizing punishment. Again, while this is not a pleasant thing to talk about, I want to break down that statement word by word. First off, Jesus taught that hell is a place of punishment, not correction. As far back as as a man named Origen in the early church, people have taught that hell is a place where we will be corrected. And eventually, once we receive enough correction, we'll be able to get out of hell and make the leap to heaven. That one day, Origen taught, hell will be empty. And there are modern day teachers who teach the same heresy. The Catholic concept of purgatory, while slightly different, is similar in that respect. That a person may not be quite ready for heaven yet, but given enough time, you can get there. But the Bible doesn't say anything about purgatory. And the Bible does not describe hell as a place of correction. It doesn't describe hell as a place that we could ever get out of. In fact, in Luke 16, in the story Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus, he says that a gulf, a a chasm has been fixed between hell and heaven, and no one can go from there to here or from here to there. It's because hell is not a correction, it's a punishment. It's the righteous judgment of God upon all who do not obey the gospel. In Matthew 25, Jesus said, And these will go away into everlasting punishment. Listen to how Paul describes it in 2 Thessalonians 1. This is very strong language, but he says one day Jesus will be revealed and he will do this. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his power, and when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was Believed. Hell is a punishment, not a correction. Second, Jesus said hell is eternal, it's not temporary. There are some people who teach what is called annihilationism. It's the idea that people don't live on forever in hell, but instead they are annihilated, that they just cease to exist. And again, I wish that that were the case, but that's not what the Bible says. Repeatedly the Bible says that hell is eternal. Matthew 3 calls it an unquenchable fire. Matthew 9 says Jesus said there it's a place where the worm does not die. Revelation 14, Revelation 20 says it's a place of torment where the smoke ascends forever and ever. Now again, we want to push back on that, don't we? We want to say, you know, it just seems disproportionate, you know, that that, that here we are, we're we're sinning in, in a finite way, and yet we have to endure an infinite punishment. And yet, this is where we need to remember that the measure of our sin, the greatness of our sin, is in proportion to who we sin against. And every sin that we commit has eternity in it. Because our every sin is committed against an eternal, infinite God. And as Russ Moore reminds us, we should not think of those in hell as morally neutral. As if they suddenly become perfected people who are just longing for the grace and the goodness of God. No, rather, in hell we remain what we are. And so sinners in hell will keep on sinning for all eternity and will keep on receiving the consequences of that sin. Hell is not temporary, friends. It is eternal. It's just as eternal as heaven is. And in our passage, look at verse 46. It says, these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. If the righteous are going to a place that is eternal, we believe that, then we must also hold at the same time that that punishment is also eternal. And then also Jesus taught that hell is agonizing. There's a lot of images that Jesus used for hell. He spoke of hell as a fire. He spoke of hell as a place of darkness. Now, some people will say, well, which is it, right? It it, it can't be fire and darkness, right? If there's fire, there's light. So it can't be both. And this is where we need to remember that Jesus is using imagery, right? To tell us, uh, to give us an idea of what hell is like. He's not a medieval artist that that is sensationalizing what hell is like. He's just telling us enough to understand that hell is a place of agony. It's a place of eternal agony. And it's a place that none of us, should want to be in. And then lastly, Jesus taught this main truth about hell. It's a place of eternal separation from God. One of the images that I just mentioned was darkness or outer darkness. This image is meant to convey this truth that hell is a place where people are separated. They're in darkness. God is in the light and they are in darkness. As one writer said, this is the biggest difference between heaven and hell. In hell, there is an absence of the presence of God. That's what makes hell, hell. Now when I say that, of course, I'm not denying the doctrine that God is omnipresent, that God is everywhere. He is everywhere, and in that sense, he is in hell, but he is not relationally in hell. The people who are in hell do not have a relationship with God. They are not aware of that presence. They do not know him. They do not see him. And that is the worst part of hell, being separated forever from the glorious presence of the God of the universe. And again, that sentence, to be separated from God, is God's sentence on those who will spend eternity in hell. But you know, another way of looking at that, It's to see hell as a place that those who end up there have chosen for themselves. In fact, in John chapter 3, right after verse 16, where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is what it says in verse 19. And this is the condemnation that the light, Jesus, has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil. Jesus is the light of the world. And in the end, the reason people reject the light of Jesus is because they prefer the dark. Because in our sinful nature, we would rather live in the dark than in the light. And in the end, God says to us, okay, if you prefer the dark, then that is where you will remain. And that is exactly what hell is. If we end up in hell, it's not because God does not love us. It's not because God has not done everything possible to save us from hell. If we go to hell, it's because we walked right past the bleeding body of his son who was crucified on the cross precisely so we wouldn't have to go there. In a manner of speaking, hell is not where God sends us. It's where we send ourselves. I can't improve upon what C.S. Lewis has written in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says, In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs? To give them a fresh start? Smoothing every difficulty? Offering every miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary. Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven because they're rejecting that forgiveness, right? To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that is what He does. That's one way of looking at it. Some of us have essentially been saying to God our whole lives, I wish that you would just leave me alone. And in the end, that is what He does. He leaves us alone to the place and the path that we have chosen for ourselves, a place where we get to be our own little God forever and ever, and what we find there is hell. I'm sure there's probably many More questions that arise in your mind when you think about this doctrine of hell that I haven't been able to respond to. I'm sure there's questions that that no one will be able to respond to until we're with the Lord. And at the end of the day, we have to trust all of those questions to God. We have to take to heart what Abraham said in Genesis 18 Will not the judge of all the earth do right? He will do right, he is a perfect judge and his judgment and his justice will be perfect, and one day we will see that. But in the meantime, we don't need to be spending so much time trying to figure out hell that we fail to live in the light of hell. Because just like with every doctrine, the doctrine of hell is meant to transform the way we live our lives. So with the little bit of time we have left, here's the question. How should our belief in hell change the way we live? I just want to share three ways, although many more could be shared. But here's the first way. Because we believe in hell, we should glory in the beauty of the cross. I know that the cross is not mentioned in Matthew 25 and our passage, but it is, of course, the subject of the next three chapters of Matthew. Matthew 26 and 27 and 28 are all about the cross of Christ, the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. And what we need to remember is that this one, this Savior who spoke these words to us about hell was about to, in the very next chapter, right, in the very next moment, he he was about to go to the cross so that we would not have to experience hell. And on the cross, we see how seriously God takes our sin. Our sin problem is not a light matter to God. It is so serious that it costs the death of the perfect son of God to pay for it. Now, I do not believe, as some do, that Jesus went to hell after he died on the cross. But I do believe this. I believe that Jesus experienced hell while he was hanging on the cross. Because what is hell? Hell is a place of torment. It's a place of agony. It's a place of suffering over sin. That is what Jesus endured on the cross. We said that hell is a place of abandonment. It's a place of outer darkness. Is that not what Jesus was experiencing when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus as he hung on the cross. He experienced hell for you, friend, so that you would not have to. When I was walking out of the house on Monday morning, I had a book in my hand that was about hell. And Megan was in the doorway and I looked at her and said, I'm going to have to think about hell all week long. And she looked back at me and she said, just be thankful that you're not going there. And I am. I am thankful because of what Jesus did for me, that I'm not going there. Glory. Let's allow the doctrine of hell to cause us to glory more than we do in the beauty of the cross of Christ. Secondly, here's how believing in hell should change us. Our hearts should break like God's does for the lost. The prophet Ezekiel says that God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. In, In Peter, it says that God's will is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that all should come to believe in Jesus. God's heart breaks over the condition of the lost, and ours should too. I love the example of the Apostle Paul in this in Romans 9. This is what he said about his fellow Jews. He said this, "I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ, for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh." Did you catch what he just said? He, he just said, "I wish that I was accursed." He said, I wish that I would go to hell so that my countrymen did not have to. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure I can say that about anyone. And yet Paul's heart was breaking over the state of the lost. The same Paul, by the way, who told us in Philippians 4, verse 4, to rejoice always, again I say rejoice, even while he had joy in the Lord and in his own salvation, he also carried with him a burden and a brokenness for the state of the lost that drove him to do what he did. If we really believe the doctrine of hell, we should carry that same burden with us because every day we are surrounded by people at work and in our neighborhood and maybe at our kitchen table who right now, unless they turn in saving faith to Jesus, are headed to an eternity in hell. Not only should we be broken about them, but number three, we should pray for them. We should pray and plead with the lost to be saved. And again, Paul is such a great example here. He writes this in 2 Corinthians 5. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you, we beg you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. One of the most conflicting things for me this week as I've been thinking about this doctrine of hell that I say I believe is how little evidence there is in my life that I actually believe it. Francis Chan admitted the same in his excellent book, Erasing Hell. He said this, I show little evidence that I actually believe in hell. And then he said this, hell is for real, am I? That's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Am I for real? If I really believe that one day there's a judgment day, That one day every single person I meet will stand before Jesus Christ. That the difference between where they'll spend eternity is whether they know Christ. That there are only two eternal destinations. One is the glory of heaven and the other is the horror of hell. If I really believe that, then why are we not sharing more than we are? Why are we not pleading with the lost? Is it possible that we are too scared because we selfishly care more about what people think of us than whether or not they know Jesus and whether or not they will spend eternity in heaven? If we believe in hell, we should plead with people to be saved. But as E.M. Bounds has said, before we plead with men for God, we should plead with God for men. And that's what I want to invite you to do right now. I want to ask you right now to think of the name of someone you know who does not know Jesus. I'm pretty sure everyone in this room knows of someone right now in your life who does not know Jesus, who right now is on a path towards the eternal hell that Jesus has taught us about in the Word of God. And what I want to invite you to do, maybe there's some in this room that you haven't come to to an altar like this in in decades. But I want to ask you to come. I know we won't have room for everybody, but I know everybody has a name. Everybody in this room knows someone who doesn't know Christ. And I want to ask you to come right now. You don't have to wait for me to be done talking. If you have a name of someone who doesn't know Christ, I want you to come right now, just kneel here at the altar. When there's no more room at the altar, you can kneel in the aisleways. I want to ask that everyone in our church right now, if you know the Lord right now, that you would kneel if you're physically able to kneel, that you would come to the altar, that you would lift up a name to God, that you would cry out to him on behalf of that person that is on your heart, and you would ask God to save them. Because it isn't our words that save anyone, it is only the grace of God. So take a minute, church, you can pray out loud, you can pray silently, whatever God leads you to do. Pray right now for that name that's on your heart.